Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. For many African-Americans who were engaged in a daily struggle to survive Jim Crow laws, discriminatory treatment, and racial hostilities during the 1930s, 1940s, and 50s, the military became an employment and career choice. There were those African-Americans who reasoned that a way to obtain a measure of equal protection in this country was to join the service. Others reasoned that by joining the service, it would result in a better acceptance by whites, while others found that the military would provide a fairer employment opportunity than was generally available in the general public. In addition, there was a sense of pride that those who enlisted felt as they dressed in their military uniform, even though they continued to feel the personal stings of racism within and without the uh, service that they had in. For too many African-Americans, service in the military increased the danger that they faced from whites who resented the fact that they wore the uniform and used it to demand a measure of equality and respect. In so many instances, this white resentment resulted in physical attacks upon African-Americans who wore any uniform which caused death and or serious injury to them. Tonight, we're going to discuss some of that history and how the legal system has responded or failed to respond to most of the criminal conduct which African-American soldiers have experienced. Joining us for this discussion is Professor Margaret Burnham. She's the first African-American to serve as a judge on the Boston, Massachusetts Municipal Court She now teaches at the Northeastern University School of Law and has researched this and other critical race-related issues throughout her career. Her book on this topic, By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners, will be released shortly. Professor, Professor Burnham is the director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She is also the co-director of the Center of Law, Equity, and Race, or CLIA, and was recently appointed by President Biden to serve as a member of the Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board, which is researching a long list of unsolved, racially inspired killings of African Americans that have occurred since 1940. So, Professor Burnham, thank you for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you very much, Professor Joyner and Professor Dawson. 
Irv and April, and I would be Margaret. Uh, thrilled to join you uh, on on uh, on uh, on this uh, evening, and thrilled to uh, say a few words about uh, my work around soldiers and World War II uh, and Jim Crow, um, as well as about um, the book, which, as you say, is forthcoming uh, at the end of uh, September. Okay. Well, you know, I know you you go back for a while uh, from the uh, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, uh, where you uh, worked, uh, and then moved into the uh, judiciary, where you uh, desegregated uh, the uh, the ju judicial system uh, there in uh, in Massachusetts, and desegregated so many other things uh, along your uh, path to where you are today. But for our audience. Can you kind of describe to them the uh, the work and focus of the uh, Civil Rights Restorative Justice Project and what it is that uh, that you seek to do there? Thanks so much, Irv. Um, so the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project uh, said, uh, centered at the, at the law school, but engaging with scholars across the university at Northeastern uh, was started uh, 15 years ago. Uh, around that time, uh, the U.S. Congress uh, passed and uh, then President Bush signed uh, the Emmett Till Cold Case Bill. Uh, the purpose of the Emmett Till Act uh, was to provide support to prosecutors across the country uh, who were picking up uh, cold cases from the civil rights era, uh, namely 1955 through uh, 1955 uh, uh, through 1967 uh, during that period, uh, and taking a second look at them to determine whether um, they uh, could be uh, uh, retried or, or prosecuted anew. Uh, for example, today uh, we heard that a grand jury uh, refused to uh, indict um, the uh, woman who um, started um, the uh, events that led to the um, slaughter of um, Emmett Till in 1955 in Money, Mississippi. Uh, we heard that a grand jury um, down in Mississippi refused um, to uh, indict uh, indict this person. Um, so there has been a, a, a long uh, engagement by journalists and by uh, lawyers and prosecutors uh, with this effort to take a second look at this um, era uh, and determine what legal remedies might still be available. And uh, today's events are really certainly a part of that, um, of that initiative. Um, we began working uh, with uh, individuals who were involved in that movement, but we quickly realized um, that there were a number of cases uh, for, which for which legal remedies would never be available. Uh, and these were cases from the 1930s and 1940s uh, uh, that were not well known. Uh, many of them looked uh, very, very much like the more well-known cases of Emmett Till, Medgar Evers, and the four Birmingham um, girls from 1963. Um, and yet they had never uh, really seen the light of, of, uh, of history, uh, certainly had never seen the light of, of justice in a courtroom. And so we started this program uh, in order to um, to uh, connect with the families, to record their stories, um, to collect documents before they uh, became lost to history, uh, and to accumulate all this material in one place. 
Um, so in the end of September of this year, uh, we will uh, launch for public um, consumption and uh, edification the um, uh, what we're calling the Burnham Nobles uh, Civil Rights Restorative Justice Archive. The archive mm -hmm. includes 1,000 cases from the years 1930 to 1950, uh, to the end of 1954, 1930, 1955. Uh, and we're really just looking here um, at the uh, 11 states of the, of the former Confederacy. Um, there are other projects that uh, need to uh, conduct investigations elsewhere, uh, but those are the parameters of our project. Um, that's our geographical and our temporal, um, uh, 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 temporal um, terms of, of our project. Um, so these uh, cases will um, satisfy, satisfy the needs of family uh, to appreciate what government documents have been collected uh, that help them piece together their own stories. Uh, it will inspire new scholarship uh, by historians and legal scholars and sociologists, criminologists, um, that will uh, allow us to take a closer look um, at the, um, at the uh, po uh, politics, um, the economies, uh, and the culture uh, of, the Jim, of the Jim Crow South. Uh, and and to think also obviously uh, and imperatively about the through lines uh, from uh, that era uh, to the kinds of marginalization uh, and violent subordination uh, that uh, African Americans um, continue uh, to endure in this country. Okay. Now I, I see. You know, as you raise the uh, Emmett Till Act, and I, I must say that here in the uh, triangle, we were uh, obviously in the middle. Of uh, of that uh, since uh, uh, the uh, this woman was uh, a resident uh, for a while of uh, Raleigh, and uh, when uh, the discovery of the uh, the outstanding arrest warrant uh, for her was uncovered, there were many people in this uh, area who were uh, demanding uh, that uh, local law enforcement arrest her and uh, return her to. Uh, to Mississippi uh, to uh, answer the uh, warrant. And of course, you mentioned that uh, just uh, this week, the uh, uh, grand jury uh, in Mississippi refused to uh, indict her on uh, these charges. But, you know, just kind of moving forward. Now, you're also a member of the uh, Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board, uh, which seemed to fit right into uh, the uh, work that you just talked about with the uh, Civil Rights and Restorative Justice uh, Project. How do you see the uh, appointment by uh, President uh, Biden to, uh, to this panel or to this board as a continuation of the uh, work that you've uh, already started uh, there at, uh, at Northeastern? Yes, so, uh, so, so uh, yes, er, uh, the, I, the, the bill uh, or the act uh, establishing the board uh, uh, is really a continuation of the government effort uh, that uh, signaled by the Emmett Till uh, Cold Case Act that was, as I say, adopted in uh, 2007 and then uh, and then reauthorized in 2014 under uh, under President uh, Obama. Uh, so this uh, act uh, will allow. Uh, for the release of documents uh, that pertain to, uh, that are held by government uh, authorities 
federal government authorities um, that pertain to uh, violations of civil rights. The, the act is written quite broadly. It covers not just uh, anti-Black homicides, uh, but it covers uh, civil rights uh, that are as defined in a, a series of civil rights bills, in, in civil rights uh, laws, I'm sorry, including laws prohibiting uh, discrimination uh, in housing, uh, 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 obviously hate crimes. Um, so it covers, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wide swath of, uh, of uh, subject matter uh, that come under the uh, jurisdiction of the board. Uh, and the board will have to figure out how best to manage um, this, uh, this very large portfolio. Uh, our um, job will be uh, to prioritize those cases that seem to be of great significance and for which there's great public interest uh, and to get documents that have uh, heretofore been unavailable to the public uh, out there uh, so they can be absorbed, um, studied and made part of our national history. Um, so, uh, uh, so you know, many of these documents are subject to, have been subject to FOIA Freedom uh, um, of Information Act. Uh, what the um, what the Cold Case Act does uh, is it provides for a uh, methods of relief uh, of release for these documents um, that bypass um, the uh, the the uh, requirements of FOIA. And Margaret, can I ask you a a, a follow up question about the release of these documents? Is it anticipated that? Um, with release of these government documents that that might allow families to be able to take some legal action that they otherwise would not have been able to because they didn't have those that information? Well, um, that will certainly depend on, the, um, you know, jurisdictional barriers to pursue, pursuing old cases. Um, so, You've got statutes of limitation, both at the state and at the federal level uh, with respect to uh, civil remedies. Uh, with respect to criminal remedies, there is no statute of limitation with respect to murder. Uh, so to the extent that uh, there will be evidence around that issue, uh, around uh, questions of murder, uh, certainly those cases might be prosecutable. Um, but if, if, I, if I might add, uh, you know, prosecution is certainly you know, uh, remedies in the court are certainly critically important. Uh, so, so it is remarkable that no one uh, has been successfully, successfully prosecuted for the murder of Emmett Till. Right? That 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 is a, a stain on our justice system uh, that will uh, go into perpetuity. Uh, but th they aren't the only remedies. Courtroom remedies, as, as we, we're lawyers, obviously, so uh, they're important to us, uh, but they aren't the only remedies. And so, you know, as, uh, as you know, uh, communities begin to think about what other ways are, would they, uh, are available to them uh, to mark these events um, and to uh, render them part of uh, an active uh, and engaged um, history. Okay. All right, this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review, and uh, we are talking with Professor Margaret Burnham, who uh, has a distinguished uh, record as a scholar and activist and uh, uh, has uh, been in the forefront of a lot of uh, uh, civil rights uh, advances uh, over the years. I need to mention that she is 
the distinguished professor at uh, Northeastern uh, University uh, School of Law. And we're talking about uh, the uh, uh, impact of uh, military service on African-Americans, the uh, Jim Crow uh, days and some of the outcomes or lack of outcomes that uh, occurred. Uh, we're going to continue this discussion. We're going to take a break uh, for a minute. We want you to uh, stay with us, and we'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCC Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review, where we uh, continue our discussion with uh, Professor Margaret Burnham, who is the uh, Director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project at uh, Northeastern uh, University uh, School of Law. And uh, she is also a member of President Biden's Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board. Uh, that she is working with and has done a lot of research on a long list of unsolved racially inspired killings of African Americans that occurred during the uh, 1930s, 40s, and 50s before many of you were even around. Uh, but uh, she is able to uh, unearth a wealth of uh, information about uh, these racially inspired killings that occurred. Uh, during those uh, during those days, uh, kind of moving into our topic, uh, Margaret, can you kind of talk to our audience about the uh, the landscape, the environment that uh, African Americans uh, encountered uh, when they entered the uh, military in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, and some of the uh, burdens. Uh, that uh, they were confronted with as a result of uh, joining the uh, military. Thanks, Irv. 
So as you said at the at the at the outset of the program, you know, World War II was a, a pivot point for our country in so many ways. Uh, with respect to um, you know our, the African American community, uh, thousands of uh, young men and women uh, joined uh, the military, left uh, left the industries in which they were working, uh, left the farms. Uh, to join the military. Many of them remained here in the United States. The majority of people remained here in the United States, kind of the back tail of the, uh, uh, you know, of, of, the, of the service in that they were serving troops who were overboard, they, uh, who were abroad. They were the support for troops that were uh, abroad. Uh, but many as well uh, got a chance to, um, to serve on the front uh, and got a chance to, you know, get away from the small towns and from whence they had come and see a bit of the world. Uh, and, uh, and they uh, returned uh, proud of their service uh, and with a sense uh, that there were other ways of living in the world, uh, that, ex ex that, that uh, an expanded view of themselves and their place and the nature of citizenship. Uh, so in, you know, in my book, I, I, I talk about uh, the ways uh, in which the uh, federal government uh, responded uh, to the challenge um, that uh, African-American soldiers uh, presented um, uh, as they moved through the various towns, particularly in the South, uh, where they confronted uh, a, uh, the br brutal uh, Jim Crow uh, regimes, confronted and, uh, and resisted uh, fairly brutal, longstanding uh, Jim Crow practices, regime, regimes, and uh, and manners, as it were. Uh, and you know they were entitled to protection from the federal government uh, and from the War Department, and they did not get it. Uh, the War Department's position essentially was tamped down on any forms of dissent that might arise from the kinds of. Uh, violence uh, African-American soldiers are confronting uh, in, in the South. Um, ignore it, um, you know, uh, 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 and, and uh, ignore and contain it. That was the policy of the War Department. And as well, it was for the most part, with some rare exceptions, the policy of the Justice Department. Uh, in my research, I found a file that I don't think had previous, has previously been explored uh, called the Negro Transportation File. Um, this was a, uh, a set of records maintained by the War Department in the South that traced the in incidents of uh, violence and near violence uh, that uh, African-American uh, soldiers uh, uh, confronted as they tried um, simply to travel around the country. Uh, and so they kept records of this, not so that they could provide uh, re remedies, uh, but so that they could, uh, con uh, th 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 this was basically spying uh, for purposes, you know, uh, uh, accumulating information uh, for their containment uh, uh, policy. And so, you know, I asked the question, what, what, you know, why did the, why didn't our federal government, why wasn't our federal government there uh, for these soldiers? And what is it uh, about this period um, that we, we, that is, has yet to be, yet to be discovered? Um, and, and, and so I, I trace the stories of several soldiers who were basically lost their lives uh, 
on in 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 the course of resisting Jim Crow transportation uh, and uh, veterans as well who came back and who thought uh, I didn't have to sit in the back of the bus over there in France. Um, not that France was all that wonderful, uh, but uh, but but at least I didn't have at least that wasn't one of the things I had to confront. So so what is it uh, about Bessemer, uh, Alabama, that requires uh, me having served abroad to now go to the back of the bus and not doing it. That man died, by the way. Um, so I, I trace these stories. I tell these stories because um, they are a counterpoint uh, to the stories Americans uh, prefer to hear uh, about World War II and the Great Generation. Um, and so, you know, um, this too <laughs> is what, uh, you know, what, uh, what, uh, what the 1940s wrought uh, in American history. Yeah. And I think it's important for our listeners uh, to, to, to know, uh, and this is especially for some of the uh, younger listeners, that uh, during the uh, 30s and, and 40s, you had uh, kind of two classes of African-Americans who ended up in the military. Uh, one class came from the North, uh, where you did not have the same kind of Jim Crow laws and attitudes in the full respect, although there was discrimination and Jim Crowism that they faced there. And then you also had uh, African-Americans who had lived all of their life uh, in the South under the shackles of the uh, most uh, stringent form of, uh, of Jim Crow, but they were all then tossed together under the same <laughs> regiment of Jim Crow when they were in the uh, military where many of the uh, training bases were uh, positioned in the South. Uh, and they had to come and endure uh, the same kinds of discrimination that existed out in the world, even though there was an effort to try to desegregate uh, military uh, services. So this was a hot period uh, for uh, for African Americans with a lot of different ramifications, a lot of different uh, causes, uh, causations uh, resulting in uh, the harm that uh, was faced. And uh, Margaret, you talked about the inaction of the uh, federal government. What about the inaction of uh, local and state officials? Uh, where these uh, these killings uh, took place, and the fact that some of these occurred in on federal lands, which kind of insulated some of the uh, local officials from involvement in them. Well, okay, two things are true here. Uh, first of all, uh, let me just pick up on one uh, point you make, uh, Irv, about uh, uh, about uh, black folk from uh, New York and Connecticut and places like that moving south. Uh, you also had uh, folks uh, in the South who were moving to other cities. So what we what we probably what was not as well known as it what maybe should be about Jim Crow is the rules were different in every city. In some city you could get on the bus on the back of the bus. In another city you couldn't board on the back of the bus. You had to board and pay your fare on the front of the bus and then get on a, on the back of the bus. Um, so, so, so uh, the, the soldiers had to learn the rules, which they learned from the locals um, as they moved, whether they were from the South or the North, they all, they had, whenever they moved to a new city, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, uh, Louisiana, whenever they moved to a new city, learn the rules all over again. Uh, about the, uh, the, 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 the fact that the level of discrimination that they face 
as they were transitioning or working through uh, their uh, military service and and training uh, on a military inst uh, installation yes. Yes. that was uh, divorced from yeah. local uh, local and state authority. Sure. Yes, um, you know, Irv, you, you asked me um, you know, whether states and local authority had equal uh, or had uh, resp some responsibilities too. And, you know, um, oftentimes the state and local authorities would defer to the military uh, and the military wanted it that way. And oftentimes if the incident occurred in uh, when the soldier was off base, um, the military, even though uh, the assault on the soldier uh, was as a result, uh, you know, the soldier could be in uniform, uh, and therefore the assault was in effect an assault on his uniform, uh, the military in that case would say, well, no, that's the local problem. And of course, uh, the local authorities that we're talking about uh, never or, or very rarely uh, prosecuted crimes against uh, violent crimes against anti-Black violence uh, against soldiers. Uh, and so a deferral to the local authority was essentially, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, War Department was, would essentially be washing its hands of the incident. Certainly that's what occurred in the Booker Spicely um, case, where, uh, which is North Carolina case, and Booker Spicely is in uniform. He gets on the bus. Uh, he's shot uh, as he protests uh, uh, Jim Crow. Uh, seating on the bus, shot and uh, killed and lay, lay, laying out uh, on the streets in, in Durham. Um, and uh, and uh, the military investigates, but takes no action, defers to local authorities where eventually the bus driver is tried. Uh, and as we all know, uh, and as uh, uh, so often happened in these, uh, in these cases, uh, they're whitewashed uh, with acquittals. So, uh, so you have, you know, you had a combination. The, the inaction occurred at the federal, state, federal level, state level, local level, uh, and uh, in the War Department and the DOJ. They would jockey back and forth, these cases back and forth. Um, and, and at the end of the day, uh, just a completely uh, inadequate response, starting at the very top with FDR. FDR was obviously, uh, his attention was obviously focused uh, on winning a war, um, that, you know, we, that can't be gainsaid. Uh, but notwithstanding, um, there, there were no directives to uh, address the problems that African-American soldiers uh, were facing uh, across the country, uh, really, uh, during the war at all, uh, during, during the war at all. And uh, William uh, Hasty, federal judge, uh, ultimately became a federal judge, uh, was a civilian aide to the War Department, to Stinson in the War Department, uh, and quit his job uh, because it was clear to uh, Judge Hasty uh, that the Army uh, was doing nothing, excuse me, that the War Department was doing nothing uh, to protect um, soldiers. Hmm. Margaret, you mentioned Booker Spicely, who, as you noted, was here in Durham when he was killed. Can you talk about the kind of unique nature of the, the, I guess, the intersection between military soldiers being on buses and, and the, I was reading in one of your articles about the 
the nature of transportation, and, and that's what you focus on in large part, what was it about the buses and the trains that gave rise to these issues and, and what prompted you to focus on this particular area for your scholarship? Um, I was in, became uh, interested in buses, both for the geography of the bus uh, as a place of um, cultural and political interaction. Everybody has to use the bus. You know, uh, the, the, these were main, this is, you know, this is, uh, um, people had autos, but not like they do today. Uh, so it was, it was about buses and trains. Uh, and so the buses were places where uh, soldiers uh, interacted with each other and with the general public. Uh, and so soldiers traveling across the South uh, would often, as Er suggested, face Jim Crow travel for the first time. Uh, in you know, if they if they if they were new to the South, um, they were oftentimes facing it uh, for the first time. So it uh, it gave uh, rise to new forms of resistance by soldiers, uh, which then uh, encouraged. Uh, resistance among local populations. Um, so in this Negro transportation file that I mentioned, one of, one of the uh, highlights of the file were all uh, the forms of resistance or, or, uh, in which African-American women were involved. Um, you know, some of it was um, quiet, or uh, I would say uh, uh, subterranean resistance, cursing the driver, you know, uh, talking loud in the back of the bus, um, you know, uh, cursing the white people as they walk through the white area of the bus, just making it well known uh, that this was uh, this this dehumanization was completely unacceptable to African American women, uh, and African American women were uh, hit and struck and beaten for, uh, for, for, that, for these forms of resistance long before the world heard about a Rosa Parks. And so all of this is surfacing during the 1940s. And these women are uh, interacting with soldiers, African-American soldiers uh, who are supporting them. And so they are, you know, in some way, some way I look at the bus as, you know, a container of, um, that tells us about um, the, the how resistance grows and builds and and how it builds community. So that that to me was was enormously enormously in, in interesting. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU ninety point seven FM. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Professor Margaret Burnham. She is the first African-American to serve as a judge on the Boston, Massachusetts Municipal Court. She is also a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law and the director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She has a new book that will be released next month. It is By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. We're gonna have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back.
Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently A2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any legal program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking this hour with Professor Margaret Burnham, who is a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law and the director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She is also a member of the Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board, and she was appointed by President Biden to that, uh, to that board. And she has a forthcoming book, which is titled By Hands Now Known, Jim Crow's Legal Executioners. Um, so, Margaret, you were talking at the end of the break about um, one of the reasons why you have focused on the violence towards uh, soldiers within the context of transportation. And you noted that this was all going on uh, well before uh, Rosa Parks and the, the efforts in the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955. Um, can you talk about why it's important that we have a, a complete understanding or certainly a more complete understanding of the resistance that have, that took place in the civil rights movement and how the work that you do that focuses on the 1930s and 40s um, helps our understanding of what went on in the 1950s and 60s. Thank you, uh, April. Um, so, you know, uh, historians use the term the long civil rights movement to um, provide a counter to this notion that the civil rights movement began uh, with Brown and Boyd in 1954, and then of course with the Montgomery bus boycott in 1955, and that it all crashed uh, with the death of uh, Dr. King and uh, and uh, Robert Kennedy and, uh, and Malcolm uh, in the late uh, 19 uh, mid to late 1960s. Um, so, you know, they talk about uh, the long civil rights movement uh, in order to uh, reprise the uh, act, the uh, activists activism uh, of the 1930s and the 1940s. And, you know, of course, we see um, the 1930s as one of the most active periods uh, in American history, not just on the civil rights front, but also uh, with respect to labor. Uh, and then going on to the you know 19, 1930s and 1960s are sort of these two um, you know prominent decades of uh, enormous um, enormous activism uh, on uh, on questions of uh, racism as well as questions of, of labor um, and so 
um, you know, I look here um, at the at the 1940s uh, and the 1950s, which are these mid-centuries, mid excuse me, mid-decades, um, in order to uh, lift up the continuities, uh, but not, not as well, not just not only to show continuities, but also to show discontinuities. Uh, and uh, differences um, in the movements of, of uh, you know, of, of these decades. Um, now, on the question of the bus, April, uh, African Americans protested uh, uh, the Jim Crow, uh, Jim Crow transportation from the very inception of the Jim Crow bus in the in at the at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, so, you know, uh, obviously Jim Crow uh, transportation on uh, trains, well known, Plessy Ferguson, uh, but the buses begin uh, to be segregated uh, as, a, as a, you know, as a, um, as a, uh, you know, as a, as a um, indicia, uh, prominent indicia of uh, black uh, second class citizenship, uh, really in the early um, 20th century. And from that very moment, uh, protests uh, uh, commenced. Um, and and they were and they uh, continued uh, across the teens and uh, into the 1920s and the, and the 1930s. Um, and so uh, I lift up some protests that are associated with um, uh, African-American soldiers and transportation in the 1940s, uh, including a case in Mobile, Alabama, uh, you know, a, a walk to work campaign uh, in Mobile, Alabama um, that was um, uh, organized, not not launched because um, the uh, protesters uh, reached uh, a compromise uh, before they um, before the protest started uh, in response to uh, the killing of a, of a soldier uh, in that town in 19, 1943. Um, so in each one of these cases, um, there is protest sort of around, around, uh, around the bus. Uh, and, and, and so uh, 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 federal government could have done something about Jim Crow um, segregation in the 1940s. The, federal, the Justice Department considered uh, what it could do uh, to protect its soldiers as they travel, protect its soldiers. And that would have had a spillover effect. Had they been able to, to say, look, uh, our soldiers, our men in uniform and women, men and women in uniform will not ride Jim Crow in your towns, will not ride on your trains in Jim Crow fashion. That is the, that, that is the national rule. Um, had they done that uh, at the inception of the war in 1942, um, much of this could have been avoided. And as I said, as I say, it would have had a spillover effect uh, because it would have set up uh, a, a model uh, for the southern towns um, that, you know, that many of them, because they wanted the bases, they wanted the uh, industry that came uh, with the war. Um, they wanted all that. Um, had the federal government drawn a strong line, um, then, uh, that, then uh, we would have had an entirely different situation. They didn't do that. Uh, they conceded uh, to uh, Southern obstinacy uh, and to, um, you know, and to the legacy uh, of the Confederacy uh, here by, uh, you know, allowing the states' rights people uh, to, um, uh, to continue to enforce Jim Crow uh, segregation. So I tell two stories. I tell the story, you know, the story of uh, federal non-involvement, the federal, you know, uh, disaffiliation, disassociation, um, but I also tell the story of, of Black resistance, the ways um, in which um, the, the bus long before Montgomery fostered 
black community, black created a national black community and fostered um, uh, 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 forms of black resistance. And here I'm talking not you know about all forms of black black resistance in all its forms, in its most radical forms, as well as in its uh, reformist traditions. Um, so you know, negotiating with the bus companies was one thing. Uh, boycotting the buses altogether was a different thing. Um, in some cases, um, you know, there were spontaneous attacks, uh, physical attacks on the buses. Um, you know, on, you know, on on the literal bus um, itself. Um, so you know, rocks thrown at the bus. Um, all of this can be found um, in you know, as you look uh, in the archive of African-American struggle, history, and resistance um, around transportation. Well, Margaret, would you also just kind of talk about the, uh, the inaction of the uh, War Department, uh, really uh, fostered by a lot of racists who ran that? I mean, this was not like th these were uh, neutral. Uh, individuals, but the government were uh, the government was full of, uh, of of workers and staff and directors and supervisors, which held the uh, Jim Crow attitude personally, uh, and that they were administering the law as they wanted the law uh, to be uh, administered, and that was in a Jim Crow fashion, where the lives of uh, African Americans notwithstanding what we know about the uh, Tuskegee Airmen and those kinds of uh, laudatory uh, 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 depiction, uh, that the, the war effort uh, helped to uh, undergird this notion of uh, Jim Crowism and uh, discrimination against uh, African Americans. Well, you put it. You put it really well. Uh, that uh, certainly, um, you know, the the the, the presence of uh, you know a, a racial a, a racialized running a racialized war for democracy uh, is what was what we really have uh, in the 1940s and that was captured by uh, you know the the black resistance movement of the time uh, and their spokespeople in the newspapers for example so you have the uh, Pittsburgh Courier on uh, Chicago Defender, all pushing um, campaigns to link the struggles, the so-called struggle for democracy abroad uh, with the struggle for full citizenship at home. The so-called double V campaign, uh, first popularized uh, by uh, the Pittsburgh um, Korean. So there was, you know, this, and that, that continues after the war is over and the veterans come back home. You know, it's the veterans uh, who start the campaign uh, to open up the ballot box uh, in all of these southern states. Um, you know, it's the veterans uh, who uh, who uh, to get you know come together. Uh, there's a famous picture of a group of veterans standing in front of um, the Jefferson County Courthouse in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, trying to pry open the ballot box um, in these cities uh, and to uh, bring real democracy, uh, uh, bring some form of meaningful democracy uh, back um, back to back to back to the home front. Um, so yeah, you had obviously racist, obvious, you know, you know what, you know, white supremacists uh, throughout. Uh, I focus really uh, on so the 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 institutional voices and the institutional actions um, because uh, that's where you know we have the most 
um, uh, how, uh, how the, the, we have, you know, the greatest fictions about what the war was all about uh, really uh, center on, you know, what the War Department was doing and what the Justice Department was doing. I, I try to break through some of those, um, you know, some, some, some of that romanticized um, notions of, you know, how we won the war uh, to look at uh, what the course, what, what the, what the um, cost was uh, for marginalized uh, communities like, like, like the African-American community. Um, Margaret, you mentioned earlier in our discussion about remedies and um, how it's important that we get this information out. And for some of these cases, you know, court mandated remedies may not be available. Can you talk about uh, some of the other remedies or, or um, how your research and getting this information out can be beneficial to, of course, our society, but also individuals whose family members were involved? Yes, April. So thank, thank you for the question. Um, so, you know, across the world, uh, communities that uh, have histories of, um, of uh, violence, uh, colonialism, uh, empire building, slavery, uh, have been thinking, and obviously uh, the German history of Nazism, uh, have been thinking through the remedy question uh, and thinking uh, about so solutions, both individual as well as collective, um, uh, not solutions, but um, uh, approaches uh, to these histories uh, that uh, don't depend on, uh, on, on the courts, don't depend on judicial, uh, on the, you know, our usual notions uh, of uh, 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 justice uh, uh, at, uh, uh, residing in the courthouses. And so, you know, in part, you know, the, the, the panoply of approaches, certainly the reparations movement in the United States, uh, today's reparation, reparations movement, in the United States, which is obviously again, a, you know, suggests a continuity between uh, today's uh, movement and uh, and and that of you know over the last century uh, for for reparations. Um, certainly, that is uh, uh, affords an opportunity to think about uh, think about remedies uh, that don't depend on plaintiffs, defendants, uh, and judges. Right, um, and so uh, I argue. Uh, that you know uh, that, uh, that that we need to insert in the reparations debate the the question whether those who have those families who have lost family members uh, to homicidal anti-black violence um, should be a, a, a sh should get reparations to put it quite plainly. Um, should get and, and if so, obviously, then the question is uh, from whom, uh, what form, uh, and all you know. There are all these sort of um, uh, questions that uh, that you know partake of politics, but also just partake of um, you know uh, how you know the how to uh, questions that we have to address. Uh, but first, uh, developing consensus around the idea that uh, let's take, for example the class, those families who lost their loved ones to let's say lynching, right? Uh, and, uh, and, who's, uh, and, and, and who've been ignored, right? Um, is there a reparations remedy 
for that category uh, of, of, of claimants, uh, obviously within that category would be Emmett Till's family, having come to the end of the line uh, in the courts. Uh, what is the reparations? What is the repair, redress, reparations uh, 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 available um, uh, there? All right. Well, um, Margaret, we have just one, about a minute left. I want to ask you um, your book. So we've talked about a lot of topics that we know you've covered in your book. Are there any other topics that you hit upon that you want to share with us real quick as we kind of end out this hour? So thanks so much. It's been wonderful talking with you, Irv, and, and with you, April. And, and I will just say that the, uh, the subject that we spent our time on today, um, World War II soldiers, violence against soldiers and buses, is just one chapter in a book that um, seeks to uh, address three topics. Number one, what did our federal government do and what, and what didn't it do? Number two, uh, what forms of, of resistance uh, were common uh, during this period of time, how did black folk, how did black folk uh, fight back um, during uh, dur during this era? And number three, uh, what does this mean for today? Uh, what are the lessons um, that this history, some of which has so long been hidden, uh, and that we have now unearthed, what does it tell us uh, about our uh, ongoing um, struggles uh, and uh, realities? Uh, and lived experiences uh, in this uh, United States of America today. I'd say those are the three things, uh, three topics that I address in the book. Well, excellent. And thank you so much for being on our show and sharing all of your wonderful, much needed research with us. Uh, Margaret Burnham, she is a professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law and is the director of the Civil Rights and Restorative Justice Project. She's also a member of the Federal Civil Rights Cold Case Records Review Board and her forthcoming book, by hands now known, Jim Crow's legal executioner can actually be pre-ordered now. So we encourage you to do that. Uh, we, of course, would like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.